over to John 5. John chapter 5, looking at uh, verses 1 to 9 this evening. You can begin reading at verse 5, just to get to the very crux of the passage. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now when you come to passages like this in the Bible, it hardly needs saying, but in the context of the day that we're living in, it needs to be again emphasized that we're not dealing with legend. We're dealing with facts, with history, with real events. People would try to take away our confidence in the Bible as reliable with regard to events, history, facts, details such as these. When we read the likes of this passage, as indeed all of the Bible, when it talks about events, we're talking about things that, it's talking about things that actually took place in the history of this world, in the generations that the Bible deals with. When you come to miracles like these, you know that John refers to the miracles as signs. Uh, he has that word because for John, the miracles of Jesus pointed out certain things that were true particularly about Jesus himself and the claims that he was making which is why as we've already seen before a number of times you'll find that uh, in John's gospel the signs, the miracles are attached to some of the statements that Jesus made about himself. For example I am the resurrection and the life is tied up with the miracle of raising Lazarus bringing him back from the dead so the sign and the miracle the miracle uh, connect very closely with the claims that Jesus is making and the truth about himself. And we usually find that miracles are joined to statements of faith, very often on the part of those who have been, like this man here, healed by Jesus. Whatever miracle it was, whatever type of miracle it is, very often in the Bible you'll find there's something to do with faith either in the person that's been healed or dealt with by Jesus or in some way or other in the context. If you just cast your mind back to the previous chapter there um, in verse uh, 53 of chapter 4, you'll find an example of that sort of thing. Here's the, the nobleman who had uh, this uh, son that was uh, sick to death, uh, to death and uh, and uh, Jesus uh, actually brought this uh, child back to life and uh, or, or uh, um, uh, he brought his healing brought him healing and recovering and uh, you'll find in verse 53 that the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him your son will live and he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did so you find they're very closely connected the faith that's mentioned there with the sign that Jesus did. So that you find signs in John are very often connected with expressions of faith, confessions of faith, or something to do with faith. But when you come to this man in chapter 5 that we're looking at tonight, there is no such emphasis. There is no detail here about this man coming to believe. 
there's nothing really to do with faith at all on his part mentioned by John. For all that Jesus did to him and did for him, it appears that he was not changed, though he had the benefit and the blessing of being cured of his illness. And if in fact you go forward to verse 11, uh, here he is uh, uh, telling them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Uh, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And that really hits you as strange. If I had my life transformed in the way that this man had his life transformed, I would be interested to know who had done this. What was the name of this person who had actually managed to, to do such a thing for me as miraculously to restore me to health? This man doesn't seem to have been concerned to find out anything about Jesus or he would have asked somebody around there, do you know who this man is? Where's he gone? Where can I find him again? There's nothing like that. And then when you go to verse 15, you actually see that this was the man who uh, said to the Pharisees who were very keen to deal with Jesus, um, where he said well, Jesus found him of course in the temple in verse 14 and Jesus said to him see you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you you see he doesn't seem to have had any change in his life or in his thinking and Jesus is saying to him now you've had this benefit just look what's been done for you so go and sin no more because if you don't actually accept this and change your life in regard to it a worse thing could happen to you than the illness that you had. And what does he do? He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He divulged the identity of Jesus to those who were trying to find him so as to deal with him, to arrest him and to do away with him, basically. So it really means that not every case of healing or of a miracle done by Jesus actually led to that person coming to be saved, coming to believed. And the point to ponder from that for you and for me tonight is that we can actually be blessed in so many ways and still not be saved. We are blessed tonight by, by being here, by being in church, by being under the gospel. We are blessed by God in the ordinary course of our lives in so many ways. We've read and sung about that in some of the Psalms we read tonight and sang. The blessings of God that come to us, the very material things that he blesses us with, the context in which he's brought us up to live our lives under the gospel and relative peace. So many things by which God can be said to have blessed us. But that itself does not mean we're saved. And here's an instance of a man who had this miracle done in his experience by this Jesus. And yet here is Jesus saying to him, Sin no more, lest something worse may happen to you. And tonight, just because we have many blessings, that doesn't mean that we automatically come from that to put our trust in Christ. We can be blessed in many ways and still not be saved and still not have come to profit spiritually and eternally from the blessings that God conveys to us on a daily basis and yet whatever it is with the man and we're saying that it doesn't appear that he has had any change in his own life or thinking nevertheless John uses this as a sign John uses this to convey spiritual meaning to us so whatever is true or not true about the person 
in the miracle itself, here or elsewhere, it's always the case that John uses miracles, the signs as he calls them, to convey important truths about Jesus especially, and here also about Jesus in relation to ourselves and to our need. Let's look at this under three points, three headings. There is, first of all, a pitiful condition as you look at this man as he's first described. Then there is, secondly, on the part of Jesus, a pointed question where he comes to throw this question at him, do you want to be healed? And then thirdly, there is a powerful command where Jesus commands him to get up and to take up his bed and to start walking. And that's exactly what happened. Along with the command came the power of Christ to change this man physically from what he was. A pitiful condition. Now we find the description there of this pool of Bethesda. Uh, you go to the authorized version, you've got additional words that describe for us the belief that people had that this pool had healing properties for whoever was first cast into it. That's what lies behind this and the translators in the ESV. Like many manuscripts from which the New Testament is translated, uh, the, these verses don't appear, these words don't appear in many of the, origi the, the old manuscripts. Um, so they've decided that they weren't part of the original text. And nothing really is done by way of harm in that. But there was, you can see, a belief people had that if you were taken to this pool, once it was stirred up for, for whatever reason, um, the waters in the pool sometimes boiled up. And the person putting in, it was thought, first of all, after that, was going to be healed of whatever disease they had. And here was this man who had been lying here for 38 years. Lying by this poolside, or at least coming to this poolside regularly, doesn't mean that he was actually lying there all this time, but he had been coming there for 38 years with this in his mind, that if he, was, if he managed to be the first person into this pool, then he would be cured of this problem, this disease, this illness, whatever it was, we're not told. But he was largely paralyzed, an invalid. He could not obviously manage to get himself into the water. Somebody else always beat him to it. And that's why he was still here after 38 years had passed and nothing had changed for him physically. And he was living with that burden. He was living with that disappointment. He was living with that from day to day or certainly from week to week. And every time he thought that perhaps this would be his time, his hopes were again dashed. And it's quite likely that he had begun to lose hope of ever being changed. They had begun to lose hope that it would ever happen to him, that his illness would indeed be successfully dealt with by the waters of this pool. But you see, the point that's important is that Jesus knew that. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? And that's one of the most important points that we can take from the passage, whatever your condition is or mine tonight, however long it is you've been waiting for something to happen in your life, however long it is you've been visiting the pool, if it were, as it were, the pool of this church or the pool of the gospel, however much you've stood beside it, however much you've hoped that somehow that change would come, and it hasn't yet come as far as you can see, be encouraged by the fact that Jesus knows. He has not turned his back on you. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Knowing that he'd been there a long time, he said to him, 
And it is a measure of comfort to us all tonight that whatever our circumstances in this world are, they are known to this Jesus. John very often speaks like this in his gospel. He doesn't tell us that anybody told Jesus, and that's quite deliberate on his part. He often presents Jesus in this way to us so that we'll get an insight into the deity, the godhood of Jesus, the, the, the mind that Christ has as God, as the Son of God. And that's really what's conveyed to us, I think, in this instance here. Jesus, knowing that he had already been here a long time, he knew it straight away. He knew the exact situation pertaining to this man. And you may be saying tonight, if only somebody understood my situation. If only I could get somebody that really was familiar with what I'm going through. If only I could actually explain this to somebody or try and discuss this with someone that has been there before me and knows what this is like. Well, you have. You have Jesus who knows that about you, who has that knowledge of you that no one else has, who can do for you what no minister or elder or fellow Christian or fellow human being can do. So that's the point. First of all, it's a pitiful condition. He's been here a long time. He's been waiting for this to happen, that he would manage to get first into this pool to be cured. And he's probably given up hope. That comes across in the way he answers us. We'll see the question Jesus put to him. That's the second point. A pointed question. A very pointed question. A very direct question. Jesus, from that knowledge of him, then says, Do you want to be healed? And the word want there will be better. The older translations had, um, Wilt thou be healed? Do you will? Are you willing to be healed? It's not really simply a matter of desire. It's a matter of will. Do you will to be healed? Are you willing to be healed? Is it something you earnestly really have your mind set upon? That's what he's really saying to this man. Now, it's interesting that Jesus came with such a direct question, and sometimes that's what we need. We're, not living, we're living in a world where that's not very popular, uh, and many of the reasons that, or one of the reasons that the Bible isn't popular for people is that it asks very direct questions of us. It challenges our worldview, our view of ourselves. It challenges what we think of ourselves. It challenges what we think of God. It challenges us as to what we think of the world in which we live, what we think of death, what we think of eternity. And every time we come to the Bible, there's something that really hits us directly. And that's quite deliberate on the part of God because He knows we need to wake up. He knows we need direct questions. He's not going to leave us slumbering in the sleep of sin and death. And Jesus comes into this situation and he knows. He knew that this man needed this question directly asked of him. Particularly so if he had begun to or had lost hope really that he would ever come to have his life improved. Do you really want to? Are you really willing to be healed? And that is so appropriate in regard to salvation too, isn't it? It's not that we wouldn't desire to be saved. It's not that the desire doesn't exist in your heart and mind to be saved. Of course it does. Otherwise, why do we come to church? Why, we, why do we come to listen to the gospel? But then you've got to go deeper than that. You've got to go as deep as your will. Are you willing to be saved? Is it a matter of your will to be saved? 
Because we can say quite easily, I'm sure, well, I desire to be saved. I would want to be a Christian. Of course I want to be saved. I want to be at last in heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I want everything the Bible says is good for me. Yes, that's okay on the level of desire. But are you really willing? In the sense in which being willing means to take everything that comes with the change that's required. To take everything that Jesus says is, in fact, his terms of salvation. Are you willing to accept him as he is? Are you willing to accept his conditions? Are you willing to accept what he says of you in terms of your need as a sinner, of your need to repent, of your need to come to God and give yourself entirely into the hand of God? That's what he's really saying to the man. Are you willing? Is this really what you want above everything else? To be healed? One of the great Christians of ancient times, Augustine sometimes, known as St. Augustine, wrote a great book called The Confessions, where effectively he's giving his testimony and going over his experiences towards the time that he became a Christian, that he was converted. He had a very good mother who taught him the ways of God, but he went away from that, as sadly many do, and lived a very debauched life, very immoral life, until one day he took up the Bible and heard the voice of God speaking to him. And in reflecting on that, this is one of the things he said. This is all in the form of a prayer to God or him speaking to God throughout these uh, this book, The Confessions of Augustine. When thou didst say, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light, I could not answer thee as I should. On all sides thou showed me that thy words were true. But drowsily I replied, Presently let me alone for a little while. Only this presently of mine had no present and the little while drew out into a long time isn't it so true of ourselves that we say well not quite yet not right now not presently but as Augustine said there there was no present in that and it began to draw out and eventually led into a long period of time without God, without hope. And so from this passage tonight, you can also apply it in that same way. Christ's question is aimed at you and at me tonight as well. Let it be said, it's not the minister that's asking you this question. I'm only a spokesman. I'm only here as a mouthpiece for the Lord and he's speaking to you through his word primarily do you want to be saved all of you tonight who are unsaved yet here in this building this is what he's saying to you are you really willing to be saved is it what you really want he's probing your heart he's probing your mind he's getting you to look at the situation because what will be forever in your life including your eternity, hangs on the answer to this question. 
Are you willing to be saved? And it's for you and for me to answer that for ourselves. Nobody else can answer it for us. And you may be here tonight and say, Well, I've been coming to church a long time. Why am I still like this? I've seen some younger people than myself come and be converted. They're now communicants. They're professing Christians. And here I'm still like this. Are you losing heart? Are you languishing around the pool of Bethesda? And have you begun to think it's just not going to happen for me? But here's what Jesus is saying to you. Are you really willing to be changed? To be saved? To be born again? To give your whole life to Christ? That's what he's saying. And if the answer to that is yes, then you have the very person who can change your life that you're speaking to in that. If your answer is yes, of course I do. Then pursue with him all that's required for you to be saved. And if you're here tonight and you're young and you're saying, it's too soon for me, surely. Surely being saved and being a Christian and following Christ and coming to take communion is that not just for older people? Is that not just for people who have outgrown their youth and the things of their youth and the activities of their youth? Well, here is Jesus saying to you tonight, young person, it doesn't matter how young you are, you're never too young to be saved. It doesn't matter how old you are and how much you've let your life go by, you're never too old for hope to be created in your heart. Neither are you ever too young to be saved, to follow Christ, to come to know him. It's not too early for you. And tonight, all the young people here tonight, as well as all us older people, are being asked the same question. Are you willing to be saved? The Lord is saying that to each of us tonight. Are you willing to be saved. Notice then his, his answer. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now you can see from that, firstly, uh, this man is still thinking of the same way of cure for his illness as he's always been thinking of. And sadly, that's how some people actually look at it. Their own way seems to dominate and come ahead of any other possibility. They have an idea as to how they themselves should be in their relationship with God, how they themselves would come to actually be believers and come to be Christians and come to profess Christ. And uh, That's what this man is saying. He's, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Why are you asking me this question? He comes across as a pretty grumpy man, as you can see in the rest of the passage, as I've said. He's not a very attractive personality at all, in fact. Sir, I have got nobody to put me into this pool when the water is stirred. Why are you asking me, do you want to be saved? Am I willing to be saved? Not a question of that. It's just that nobody is here to help me through. Well, there's no other way as far as this man is concerned. And so that's how it is very often in life as well. One of the destructive effects of sin is that it leads us to think we know best ourselves, that we can take control of our own life, 
And we can choose the moment when or when not to believe what and what not to believe. You remember Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, this very important Syrian, and he had leprosy. And he heard about Elisha, the prophet that was in Israel. And he decided to go and see Elisha. And Elisha said to him to go and uh, bathe. And it was something that really disappointed this man deeply. Um, you probably remember the story, I'm sure you do. Again, it's a historical fact. It's not something that's legend. In Second Kings chapter 5, where he was told um, by this little girl that there's this prophet in, in Israel. So he went, took with him gifts to give to Elisha. And uh, so when Elisha came, uh, he said to him, Go and bathe in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. You might imagine Naaman would be delighted. Here was a man who was wanting uh, to be rid of his uh, disease, of his leprosy. And here is Elisha, this man of God, saying, all you've got to do is go to the Jordan, bathe there seven times and you'll be cured. You'll be restored. You'll be clean. And he went away angry. He was furious. Why was he furious? Why would he be so furious about such an amazing thing being told him? Well, he said, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. See what's happening there. Here is a man who really wants to have his life changed. He's burdened with this problem that he's had in his life. He wants to be rid of this problem. It's something that's really troubling him. He's told, here's a man who can do this for you. He can tell you what to do. He goes to the man. He tells him what to do. And he's furious because it doesn't accord with his own thinking. That doesn't fit in with what he himself thinks is best for him. Could I not have gone to these rivers of Damascus. Why this river Jordan? I thought. You see, these are the key words. Behold, I thought. I thought that he would do this. Just wave his hand over where the disease was. And that would be it. Call upon the name of his God. And that would be it. I thought. You know, I and you need to be rescued from that. I thought. We need to be redeemed from that I thought because that's at the core of our fallen sinful condition. We need to be taken out of that and we need to be taken into what Jesus says, what God thinks, what God stipulates, even if it crosses right across our own way of thinking. And that's what you and I need to do tonight too if you're unsaved, if you're still don't know Christ as your Savior. Don't come to him with these words. Well, I thought this is how it should be. This is what I was thinking. Put your thoughts into his hand. Let your will be ruled by his will. That's the way to salvation. If we want to be saved, we are concerned to be saved. It's Christ's way or not at all. That doesn't appeal to us naturally. 
doesn't appeal to many people in the world tonight if you said Jesus is the way, the truth and the life they would say to you how dare you say such a thing to me but that's what God is saying friends and I hope we convey this and I convey this I hope with all the love and the concern and the compassion that we required in preaching the gospel I don't want this to be harsh for this to be regarded as a hard saying for this to be seen as just a legalistic sort of presentation of the gospel I want you to regard this as the word of Christ the compassionate merciful word of the Savior where he's saying to you and to me tonight have it my way and you'll find out there's no way like it and there's no substitute for it except ways that will condemn you forever that's what we're dealing with friends wonderful emphasis of God God in Christ are you willing to be saved don't reply I thought say to him here I am Lord take me as I am and help me to take you as you are because that's the only way of salvation thirdly, briefly along with a pitiful condition and a pointed question you have a powerful command here is Jesus saying to him get up, take up your bed and walk you see what we said it doesn't matter what you think about the man himself and whether or not he came to faith and what he was really like what is important here for us is that John is using this incident, this miracle, this sign to convey the ability of Christ, to convey the power of Christ, because this is a command of Christ that comes with his power. And all the way through John and elsewhere too in the Bible, you'll find that if you go to um, chapter 4 and verse 50 there, you'll see Jesus saying to the man, Go, your son will live. And along with the word of Christ, the command of Christ, comes the power that actually brought recovery to that man's son. You go to chapter 6 and verse 11, you'll find the same emphasis there. I'm not really going to spend too much time looking at these examples. You can follow them through for yourselves. Chapter 6 and verse 11, where Jesus again shows the power of his, his, his word when he commands. Uh, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. His word multiplied the little that was there to begin with so as to feed a multitude. And you can do the same with the likes of chapter 11, of course. We mentioned that incident a wee while ago uh, in passing, really. But that's where probably more than anywhere else in the Gospel of John, the word, the command of Christ is seen as a word that is powerful, a word that quickens the dead. And there you find it with, with uh, Lazarus uh, when that uh, sepulchre, the cave, with a stone taken away from it, Jesus then came and said, Lazarus, come out. What's he doing? Who's he talking to? He's talking to a dead corpse. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And they knew that. And that's why they were so surprised and shocked that Jesus wanted the stone taken away from the mouth of the sepulchre. But when he did, when he did speak, that's what happened. Lazarus 
came out from the dead. See, Jesus speaks creatively into our human condition. Put that in simpler terms. He speaks and we come to life. Through His Spirit, He speaks to our deadness and He brings us to life. After all, if you go back to chapter 5 where we're looking at just now and you compare verses 28 and 29 with what we're saying on this point, uh, you'll find that Jesus there is saying, Do not marvel at this. The, the teaching is just given before that. For the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of Man, that's him, himself. And they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. How do you know that there will be a resurrection of all who have died? Because my Bible tells me the voice of Jesus will achieve it. Doesn't matter how unlikely people think it, it is, uh, think of it as uh, something that's unlikely ever to happen. The dead just don't come back to life. People will tell you that's just fanciful. It's just part of this fairy tale that the gospel is that you're trying to teach people and duping them as to uh, what is true and what isn't. Well, I believe there will be a resurrection. I believe this word of God. I believe it's the truth of God. And when it tells me that Christ will come and speak to all who are in their graves so that they will come out of the grave, I believe that. It confirms to me that that's what's going to happen. You see, he's saying some will come forth to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of condemnation. And there's another point to apply to ourselves. We may not doubt the resurrection, that it will take place, but which side of it will we be on? We will never avoid coming back to life from the dead, our bodies. Jesus is going to accomplish that. But you can avoid being among those who are raised to condemnation. And the way to avoid it is quite simply to have your life safe in Christ, to have accepted Him as your Savior, to say, Lord, I am willing to be saved, so please receive me, forgive me, accept me on your terms. Now we could go further tonight. I want to leave it at that. I think it's an appropriate point. I was going to say something more about the opposition that was faced then by this man, by those who wanted just to deal with Jesus. That same opposition is active today in our world. I don't, I don't need to tell you that. It's there. Why is it that you have the same thing in chapter 12 when such a remarkable thing as uh, the raising of Lazarus led in chapter 12 to Lazarus coming to sit at this table where a meal was made for Jesus by, uh, by Martha. A dinner was given for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And uh, as you go on reading there, you find verses 10 and 11. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
What's at the heart of opposition to the gospel? What's at the heart of the drive to take the Bible out of schools, the Bible out of councils, prayers out of parliament, all of those things that we find in campaigns today to try and achieve these ends? What's behind it? Well, people say it's secularist. It's just uh, uh, people saying, well, uh, religion ought not to have precedence, not, ought not to have a special place, and the Christian religion ought not to have a special place. Well, there may be all of that, but this is what's at the heart of it. They can't stand the claims of Jesus. Can't stand the claims of Jesus. Because Jesus makes demands. He makes claims that are not acceptable to the human mind until Jesus comes to make us willing to accept it. And here tonight is very much what we need to think of for ourselves. Our pitiful condition as sinners. Jesus has come into that situation as he came into that situation at Bethesda. He asked this pointed question of me and you tonight. Are you willing to be saved? And he's counseling us not to go back to our own ideas in answering that, but just to give ourselves to him and to his salvation and to realize that his powerful command as he takes charge of our life is a command that creates life a command that looks after us a command just as it was with Elijah long ago where God said to him even the ravens I have commanded to feed you you see when you're in Christ when you know Christ when your life is safe in Christ, the command of God keeps going before you to prepare the way for you all the way into eternity. And where Jesus commands, nobody can actually overcome that. That's where we need to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your own powerful command that changes lives. You brought this very creation into being by your word. You said, let there be light, and there was light. You created a body for your Son, and you created for us eternal life through your death and resurrection and ascension on high. Lord, create in us, we pray, a clean heart. Give us tonight that our concern may be above everything else, that your will be done in our lives, that we will indeed be willing to be saved by you. So receive us now, we pray, and pardon our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's conclude now by singing in Psalm 86. Psalm 86, this time it's in the Scottish Psalter. On page 341, verses 9 to 12, the tune is Free Church. That's on page 341, verses 9 to 12. All nations whom thou made shall come and worship reverently before thy face. And they, O Lord, thy name shall glorify. And verse 11 especially is pertinent to our study this evening. Teach me thy way, and in thy truth, O Lord, then walk will I. Unite my heart, that I thy name may fear continually. O Lord, my God, with all my heart. In other words, he's willing 
everything he says. To thee I will give praise. Verses 9 to 12 to God's praise. All nations to my left after the benediction. Now may grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be your portion now and evermore. Amen.